and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about a politicized view of Iran in media and cultural products, the importance of people-to-people exchanges with Iranians, and the role of art and culture in these exchanges. My guest today is Fatima Keshavarz, a professor of Persian studies and the director of the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultures and director of the Roshan Institute for Persian Studies at University of Maryland. Fatima, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I want to first start by talking about um, the importance of cultural exchanges in general, but also the media narrative or the the broader cultural narrative about Iran that you've experienced here in the U.S. You've been a, an academic in the U.S. for decades. You've also published books. You write poetry, and you're in touch with a large body of students and academics over the years. You also have um, important ties with Iran, with academics in Iran, with writers. Talk about how you see and assess the media and cultural narrative on Iran that you've experienced in the U.S.? Well, Nagarjan, you've put your finger on a very important issue. I'm afraid uh, my feeling is that despite all the freedom of speech and proliferation of uh, means of communication, the discourse on Iran is so limited that it's unbelievable. Um, I I usually play a game with my students and I say, I challenge you to make three sentences about Iran that does not have the word nuclear or um, Islam or terrorism in it, just three sentences. And they find that they have a hard time to do that because all they get from the media is related to these issues, you know, a rogue nation or what happened in the region or the threat of the nuclear Iran. So um, unfortunately, the media hasn't been very helpful. Of course, I have to say there's uh, degrees there. There's a range, you know, NPR is doing a much better job than some other outlets. But Altogether, the American people are really robbed of the opportunity to know. And, and, and that's another thing I'll try to share with my students all the time. When there is a lack of balanced information on a part of the world, the one who loses is us because we depend on these uh, resources to tell us what happens elsewhere in the world. And then I tell them, for example, about the Tehran Book Fair, because it brings over 2 million people every year to the capital just to see these uh, publishers who gather with their books. And people go in with shopping carts to get books, and they try to get to the uh, publishers they want to quickly because... They know that the books are going to be sold. And when I say that, sometimes uh, people ask, well, are these all religious books? No, they are in all kinds of fields from science and humanities and art and cinema and, you know, anything you can think of. Besides, those 80 publishers 
or thereabout. I mean, some years maybe 85, some years maybe 70 something. They are from all over the world. So, it, you know, that kind of um, vibrancy and the culture is totally lost on the general American public. And that is very, very sad. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of this has to do with politics or basically the animosity between the nations. And we've talked a lot about the politics of this in this podcast. I've had historians, I've had political scientists, analysts, but I want to talk about the importance of cultural exchanges with you and basically how we can overcome this gap or bridge this gap. And I know you've been active uh, in your own capacity as much as you can in this field. Tell us the importance of of bridging um, in various ways. I know you've tried so many of these of these avenues, but what are some of the areas where you think this gap can be bridged um, between these two nations, Iran and the United States? Yeah, I, you know, I, I I need to tell you this little episode. I was reading about a translator and. Um, from Japanese into English. And he said, I decided to become a translator because when I read a letter from a Japanese prisoner of war to his mother, I understood at that moment that I knew nothing about the Second World War. All I knew um, were statistics and very, um, very lopsided generalities. Whereas reading this one letter, I sensed the person behind the letter. And I think that's what the arts and culture and literature can do. They can allow us to enter into this space in which we can feel another person and we can compare them to ourselves. We can connect with them. They're no longer this mass of vague, threat that is in the background. So I I try to do multiple things. For one thing, I think it's great to teach at the university. We have some of the brightest, youngest minds coming to us. So I value that very much. But that is a very small audience, really small audience. I mean, if you get a class of 35 or 40, that is a large class for culture. So one of the things that I do to enlarge that classroom and bring the discourse outside it is a podcast I do on the very popular Iranian medieval, but today very popular poet, Rumi. And in these podcasts are called Radio Rumi. So I basically combine it with the word radio, meaning, you know, he could be really a show person on our radio and talk to us through his poetry. And I try to show the relevance of his work to the life that we live today. What does he say about anxiety, about loneliness, about happiness, about love? And, um, you know, people love it. They just write to me and say, this is a new Rumi to me. I always place them in 800 years ago you know, a great towering figure, but not someone who's that relevant to present day life. So that's one way to expand the walls of that classroom. Mm -hmm. Radio Rumi.
Let me introduce the podcast to our audience. I encourage everyone to go find it and listen to it, especially if you like poetry or Rumi. As you said, it's called Radio Rumi. You've been doing this for two years, and um, it's covering a variety of different topics that Rumi has discussed in his poetry, but you also try to bring it into the current era and basically present it for a modern audience. And I want you to talk about uh, this episode on isolation and quarantine and basically what Rumi would say if he was around here with us during the times of Corona. I would like to, for the audience to know that he lived a life that in many ways faced some of these threats and in a much graver sense because they didn't have the same um, modern tools that we have to face these problems. There were wars going on around them. There were famines from time to time. There were pandemics and and all of those kinds of um, issues. So I decided to do a program on the current state of mind that we experience and then imagine what Rumi would say about that because there are, you know, he has written thousands and thousands of verses of poetry and some of them are about exactly these experiences. So, you know, at some point in that podcast, I focus on loneliness. Did he ever feel lonely? You know, although he was adored by the community and all that, but he did. He has poems in which he talks about loneliness. Was he ever afraid of anything? Yes, he was. He was afraid of being too much invaded by the desires and wishes and friendships of others and sometimes needed to kind of rescue himself and try to be who he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Also, he was surrounded by a lot of people who were not well off and they weren't feeling well. So he was facing all of these. And so in that podcast, um, I talk about these issues, but I finish on the issue of hope. One of the greatest characteristics of Rumi's thought is hope. Mm-hmm. He compares it to a road. And he says, even if you don't feel prepared to walk on that road, at least stay close to it. So I end that episode with, you know, this is what he would have done to counter the loneliness and the isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think as you and and I were talking before uh, the show about the significance of poetry in Iranian culture, Iranian life over centuries really some of these poets are some of these poems are really old essentially they were from centuries ago but and not just Rumi who's a very popular poet in Iran and and here even in the U.S. but there's Hafez there's Saadi and all of these other um, poets that are considered really cultural figures by Iranians and their poetry is constantly read by, you know, from Iranian taxis to universities to uh, the New Year's table even. Um, Talk about the 
significance of poetry and these poets in Iranian life and Iranian culture over centuries? And why is it so central, this relationship yes. with poetry? Yes, that, that, that's a wonderful point. Yes, you know, um, I tell my students, if you want to imagine how this poetry connected Persian speakers, and I must say it goes beyond Iran to all Persian speakers, mm -hmm. imagine that it's like a Silk Road, but a conceptual Silk Road. Like when Rumi says, you know, listen to the reed as it tells you the story of its separation from the reed bed, you know, that is a concept that every human being at some point experiences being separated from the origin that he or she wishes to stay connected with. And so because these topics, and of course, not every poet lasts like Sadi and Hafez and Rumi, those whose poetry focused on small kind of immediate things that 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 mattered to them are often forgotten or just known as, okay, there was a poet at that time called whatever their name was, but we don't know exactly what they said because what they said were not as relevant to our lives as human beings. Now, the fact that these poets had a vision of the world, they were just thinking about their own life. Sadi talked about the entire humanity being one body. And that's the famous um, transcription in the United Nation. And then he says, all humanity is one body. We're just limbs on that body. And if one limb is in pain, the whole body is in pain. So this is such a universal and relatable feeling that we human beings are connected. And indeed, we are seeing with the global issues, for example, be it pan the pandemic, be it global warming, we have to act as the globe. We are interconnected. So that is part of the reason, I think, the fact that these poets had such a global vision and could see beyond their own interests. The other one is the language is very fresh and very refined after millennia of use. And it has reached a point where master poets can put them into wonderful use with ease. And the other thing is, of course, these poems include entertainment, political views, education, um, even for practicing calligraphy, you use these words. So they seeped into the culture and people speak through them to each other. Let's say two family members are in an argument. A third person comes and says, come on, guys, make up already. Which is a verse of Rumi, which means you're here in order to connect with others. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, this is something God said to Moses in, in Rumi's poetry, but today it could be used to bring two friends together to reconcile their differences. So for multiple reasons, and you're right, you can get into a taxi and the taxi driver could be reciting a quatrain of Omar Khayyam or 
some a poem of Rumi. Mm-hmm. And um, besides poetry, which is a great tool, as you're saying, and very universal, what are some of the other areas in culture and arts that you think can connect the nations or basically the world to, to Iranians that can be used to build these bridges, uh, people-to-people bridges. I know you and I mm-hmm. talked about Iranian cinema, for example, and uh, some other areas. Tell us what you think can be be used, basically, as a uh, bridge between mm-hmm. cultures. Well, I think that we cannot afford to leave anything behind. I mean, as, as you point out, yes, the cinema is, Iranian cinema is, one of the better known uh, branches of art outside Iran. They're definitely very well known in Europe and in Latin America, in various parts of the world. And in the United States, they're definitely better known than other branches of art in Iran. So I think that's great. We have to uh, use all kinds of genres of cinema. It could be Um, feature films, it could be documentaries, and documentaries are in fact great because they show actual um, episodes from real life. And we do that. We do that at the university. We have a documentary night once a month, and our own students at theater organize that, and that's wonderful. A lot of people now come on Zoom, watch it from everywhere, including from inside Iran itself. I would add to that the Iranian theater. You know, one of my PhD students went to Iran two years ago to collect uh, plays that had been performed uh, within a decade. She decided to collect the script of the plays that were published mm-hmm. on that decade. Do you know how many plays she brought back? 450. Oh, wow. 450 plays had been published in Iran. And no Even I'm surprised. <laughs> yes. I, you know, actually, I was surprised. I was surprised. And then we focused on um, Iranian theater because of my student who, who works on that area. And I'm discovering every day, I'm discovering Iranian women playwrights, and Iranian women actors, directors of theater, just an amazing new community, new to me, not to Iranian people. In fact, we decided that this year for Women's Day, we will speak with a number of Iranian women in Iranian theaters through Zoom and connect with them and discuss things with them, basically have a round table. Of course, you have to have, some translators on hand. We have to find better ways of subtitling what we do, but but we we will do that. This is so important, such a treasure house of uh, art and culture that we will do that. An area that would be a little more actually surprising to people is classical music. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, uh, about less than a year ago, um, there is this organization in Iran called Iranian American Friendship Society. Mm-hmm. Um, they approached me, and uh, previously we had worked with them. We had a, a photo exhibit of the 
photographs of Nasrullah Kasrayan, who's one of the first um, ethnophotographers in Iran. So they, they contacted me and said, would you like to do a collaborative work with Iranian musicians? And I was like, of course, <laughs> that sounded so exciting. So mm -hmm. to spare the details, we worked back and forth. I connected here with a um, opera group called In Series Opera. Their director, Timothy, was very forthcoming. And we connected with the Iranian Chamber Orchestra. Um, we picked a piece of opera. The Iranian musicians played and the American singers sang it. You might have actually listened to it. It's, a, it's about seven minutes, but it's an amazing collaboration between the artists on two sides. And they did it on both sides to honor the, the sufferers from COVID. And we said, this is a time we have to overcome politics, <laughs> overcome conflict, and work to together to honor these people. And it's an amazing piece to me. Every once in a while, I go back and listen to it again. But I tell you this, that the American musicians were shocked when they saw the actual um, image of the, the clip of the Iranian musicians playing because they had expected some older, maybe from pre-revolution times, because maybe classical music is no longer popular in Iran. Not that at all. They were all young and half of them women, and they played so beautifully this Handel opera. Let's listen to a clip of the music that you were mentioning again, members of Tehran Symphony Orchestra in Tehran and musicians of the in-series opera based in the D.C. area performing part of a Handel opera. Let's hear some of it. The basil of the carnations cannot control their laughter. The nightingale back from his wandering has been made singing master over all the birds. The trees reach out their congratulations. The soul goes dancing through the king's doorway. And enemies blush because they have seen the rose naked. Spring. The only fair judge walks in the courtroom, and several December thieves steal away. Last year's miracles are last year's miracles, will soon be forgotten. Okay, we're back with Fatemeh Keshavarz, and I want to now ask you about a speech you gave. You were invited uh, to speak at the UN General Assembly a few years ago about the significance of cultural education. What was what was the gist of, of your speech and how um, you explored the significance at the General Assembly? Yes, that was um, one of the funnest experiences that I've had. I received this email 
I think the, the reason why they found me was that I had this interview with Krista Tippett on speaking of faith about Rumi or one of these episodes that I, that I had had on NPR. And they reached out to me and said, we want to do some cultural education. Would you join us? And, you know, I said, of course, <laughs> that was a dream come true. So there I didn't have a very long, you know, obviously there were 450 different uh, representatives in in the General Assembly and I didn't have a very long time to speak. But um, I think I managed to get people to think about things by suggesting that, you know, a part of the world, the parts of the world we don't know in particular, they turn into ghosts. You know, ghosts don't have faces, don't have names, they don't talk. They are just this threatening kind of dark shadows in the background. And the only way to turn them into real beings is to shed some light on on them and try to understand them. And then I use the example of Iranian women and some of their achievements. And I said, you know, we should not be thinking about them as just the Muslim women, you know, the oppressed group or the Iranian women, the oppressed Iranian women. Let us try to know them individually. And then I made a recommendation that I am to this day just hoping because the back and forth were, well, how do we do that? And I said, you guys have the ability to bring this to your government to make it necessary for your young people to travel to other countries, particularly to countries that are not that well known, so that they they see for themselves these parts of the world that they don't know anything about. If this becomes a part of the education of the youth, that already makes it a lot easier for them in the later stages of their lives to learn things about the world, to think about the world, and so on. Of course, I don't know how many of those representatives did or could do that, but that was certainly um, something that I tried to kind of a seed I tried to plant because to this day, I think the best education comes from person-to-person contact. Mm And speaking of policymakers, we know that part of this, um, you know, the dehumanization narrative that we see in media and culture or the antagonism is because it's centered basically on the politics. But then policy from top down can also affect these people to people connections. And I want to give an example, for example, during the previous administration, two two administrations ago, the Obama administration, there was a, a deliberate attempt to increase people to people um, exchanges. We knew the State Department was actively involved, for example, in bringing Iranian athletes to the U.S. for friendly games or Iranian yes. artists. And then in the Trump administration, a lot of that just stopped in in part because of this bigger issue of travel ban. Talk about that, how you think policy from the top down can impact these um, people-to-people exchanges and basically the cultural connections that exist? 
Yes, I think that, again, you're putting your finger on something very, very important for education. The travel ban damaged the American, in my opinion, the American education system in multiple ways. And of course, it was unfair to all those bright, energetic, dynamic youth who wanted to come to the U.S. during these uh, four years and study and um, basically learn and be a part of the society. So it was unfair to them. But above all, it was unfair to the American education system. We lost a wide range of very bright graduate students at the MA and PhD level who would come and they would enrich our classrooms. Not only they would pay tuition fees, which would be a lifeline for universities, but even setting that completely aside, their individual presence, diversifying communities in multiple ways, in scientific ways, because they would bring in different ways of approaches to their fields that they studied in science or in cultural, artistic, and just name it, any any field. So I find the travel ban very, very harmful. And I was just absolutely delighted that President Biden removed it right away. But I want to point to policies that are actually equally uh, harmful, but not as well known, not mm -hmm. as publicly understood so that we can counter it. For example, we usually, as educators at the university, hire faculty and colleagues and, you know, from all kinds of backgrounds. You look at who's the best. You don't look at what background they have, what culture they come from. And if they are not um, Americans, one thing that we can do is to give them to issue or apply for issuing an H-1B visa for them. And that's very standard. You just tell the authorities who they are, what's their ability, and what is why do we need that. The governments usually give you a wage determination so that the wages of these people has a limit. Now, the Trump administration tried to raise this wage so high that universities could not afford to hire people with H-1B visas anymore. It was one of the latest efforts, so it hasn't gone through, and I am hoping that it will not. But if it does, that, that means the universities can no longer afford to hire these people who are experts in their fields and bring their knowledge to American students in the classroom. So absolutely, policy making is everything in terms of the abilities that we have as educators to uh, do good both for our own population of students and elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And what we've been talking about is mostly travel and immigration visa, but then there's also this policy of the United States seemingly towards the Iranian government or mainly the Iranian people 
um, that's affecting us here in the U.S. too, and that's sanctions, this broad range of economic sanctions um, that are directed at Iran. And we've talked a lot about the politics of sanctions on this podcast with a lot of people. But I want you to explain how sanctions impact your life or work as an academic, as a member of the diaspora living here in the U.S., because these sanctions are supposed to be directed at over there somewhere else, but they do impact um, people here in the U.S. as well. You, your students, your colleagues, talk about how uh, these sanctions on, on Iran have broad limitations to any part of your work or the cultural exchange that you've noticed? Yes, well, I think the greatest impact is that uh, not only those of us who are um, of the Iranian-American background and have relatives and friends back there, and we are worried about them because one of them is a cancer patient and cannot get their chemo. The other one has, you know, not seen her or his um, daughter for ages and now cannot come and see each other. So the emotional toll, I think, is tremendous. But besides the emotional toll on all of us, you need to teach a culture to students with which they can connect. If all they hear is, no, this is sanctioned, you can't do that. No, you cannot have this Zoom contact with them. No, you cannot become, uh, you know, we cannot pair you with a student in Iran to practice. No, you cannot see this or that. This becomes almost like teaching a dead language. And that is not the case. All this vibrancy and the culture and language is there. And you're forbidden from enriching your students' education with that because every single thing you want to do runs into one thing that the sanctions uh, make difficult. I, I remember at one point we had graduate students who could no longer pay their tuitions because their families from Iran would send them money and they would have this to be used for their tuition. And then suddenly all the banks and all the contacts with Iranian banks became so difficult that the university had to find ways of giving them a little bit of a break and some time to wait for hoping that things will get better and they can uh, bring in the tuition fee and pay. Um, so that is the other thing. Another one is now we have all these digital tools. We can have some of the best scholars, not just in Iranian studies, in almost any kind of field and invite them from Iran, bring them directly to the classroom and all of these sanctions makes it almost impossible. And you know what becomes even more harmful is that people start self-censoring. So somebody who's teaching, say, electrical engineering and knows that the Sharif University's Department of Electrical Engineering is one of the best in the world mm -hmm. would no longer think about inviting 
a professor on Zoom. Forget about visiting, but even on Zoom, because these are technical fields. These are um, areas that the governments would be sensitive about. And then his department here could get into trouble by connecting too much with that university. So there are all kinds of individual ways beyond the fact that these sanctions, in my opinion, are crimes against humanity because they kill in a silent way and they can go on for a long time and they're invisible. The casualties are invisible. So quite apart from this, of course, we see all the harms to what we can do in the classroom here to be effective teachers. And um, speaking of sanctions, I know you're also an activist for peace and justice, and you've dedicated time, some of your time to this cause for a while now. Tell us a little bit about your activism and those stories and how you have tried to work, you know, towards peace and justice over the years. Yes, I um, I think it really started when one time in 2006, I came back to the U.S. from Iran, and everywhere in the newspapers, there was a big headline that Iran is putting a uniform on Jews, and this is dangerous. They're, you know, they were sending signals like this is what happened prior to the Holocaust. And I've just arrived from Iran, and I have Jewish friends there, and I didn't know anything about it. So what are they talking about? Anyway, uh, to make a long story short, I did a little bit of research and found out that there was a debate in the Iranian parliament where some uh, representatives were saying, we should buy Iranian fabric and we should, you know, this conversation about uh, what we need to do. And of course, a lot of Iranian fabric sellers uh, are Jewish, you know, and all of that was interpreted as they're going to recommend a kind of particular fabric to be bought and ask the Jews to wear it as uniform, which I find extremely insulting to my Iranian Jewish friends who have their dignity, who are who live in Iran as an Iranian, and they know they, they know themselves as Iranian and they're really offended by this. So I started at that point to blog. And I started a blog called Windows on Iran. And what I did then was just to go to painting exhibitions online, of course. not I wasn't in Iran. And pick up the paintings of certain painters, mostly women. I would go to flower sellers or the flower festival and then print pictures of flower festival. I would also pick up articles from daily journals and basically critique them. Mm -hmm. And you know, in no time, I had 100,000 hits because it was so rare. There was such a thirst for this. Now there are, of course, all kinds of blogs and podcasts, and I'm delighted to see just like your own work that we are now using at this moment. So there is a lot more. So that was the beginning And then the fear of an attack on Iran has always been a part and parcel of the Iranians' lives here. The fear that the two parts of their identity of Iranian and American are 
constantly close to crash with each other. So during that time, I got to know the Veterans for Peace, for example. In I lived in St. Louis at the time. Mm-hmm. And those Veterans for Peace were just amazing people, people who had experienced the horrors of the Iraq war, and they didn't want an American-Iranian war. And so we organized, uh, basically trying to inform people by inviting speakers and exposing the community to kinds of information that they did not have. Then, of course, I got to know um, the Coke Pink friends and all kinds of other activists, Nayak people. So I see a lot of vibrancy and hope in the young activists. So they are really a bright spot when I'm worried and and kind of feeling low about what happens in the world. I think about these energetic, young, peace-loving people who want to bring about change in in a peaceful way. But if I may add, I also want to say that I also see it as a responsibility for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a scholar of Iran, and it, it's not, not just my life and my childhood. It's what I have immersed myself in. And so I think that this is a duty for a per- if a person like me limits his or her contact with a handful of students in the classroom that's abdicating their their responsibility and role. So I see academics as needing to be public intellectuals at the same time. And I think if more of us do that, we'll be a force in bringing about a better world, a better globe, basically, to pass on to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Let me make a note about that uh, episode in 2006 that you were mentioning. It was initially published by the National Post in Canada and yes. a lot of waves and then eventually Reuters, the Associated Press and some other Iran watchers and scholars um, refuted the reporting and the National Post finally also issued an apology, but it was later and it had already made its effect. Yes. And um, I also want to ask you about Shiraz. You were born and raised in Shiraz, the city of poetry in Iran. And you have studied at Shiraz University. And you're also a published poet yourself in Persian and English. Talk about living in the city of Shiraz. I'm sure it's a unique experience. And... If if you miss it, how much how much you miss? Oh, absolutely! Um, I miss it. <laughs> I miss it every day, you know. But I think the fact that I have connected with English poetry and English poet friends here—that's wonderful. I don't see it by any means as a, a solely Iranian, you know, advantage. But we, I definitely grew in a family in which. Education was poetic and even punishment. I remember when my mother was upset with us, she would shake her fingers and say, which is a Saadi verse, which means trying to discipline a rascal is like trying to balance a walnut on top of a dome. 
<laughs> Impossible. <laughs> and, uh, yes, and of course it will not stay there. It would roll down. But you know what? When she said that, I always felt, I always imagined this walnut rolling down. It was there was laughter in it, you know. There was it, she couldn't have been too angry, too upset. So, but it was a part of our lives all the time. Like my best teachers of poetry were my parents because they constantly read poetry. We played the game of moshaire, you know, when one person recites a line of poem and the other one responds with a line that starts with the last letter of the of the verse that the other person had recited so it's a, it's another excuse for reading more poetry mm. <laughs> and that was there all the time and i really am grateful to that because these figures like hafiz like sadi like rumi um like ferdowsi and his shahnameh the book of kings they were like torches that that shed light in the corners of our house everywhere so i grew up in a in a house that thought of the world not just thought of itself and i'm very grateful for that but also you know there were really fun episodes i i may have told you this in our conversations earlier that we lived in a house at some point that was very close to the mausoleum of hafiz the, mm-hmm. the one of the great uh, lyric poets and when i was in in high school i would pick up my books and notebooks and go to hafizier which was the name of the mausoleum area and i would sit on a bench and study mm-hmm. and it was quite natural to me that large numbers of people walked in walked to the tomb they sometimes they were reciting a poem under their breath sometimes they went there and said a prayer for the poet sometimes they were talking and joking with each other but the whole point of there was that hafez was there his voice was there and you know only after i left iran and i did my graduate studies in england i lived in london for 8 years when i was doing my master and masters and phd and later on of course i came to the united states i discovered that not every culture walks to the mausoleum of a poet when mm-hmm. they want to enjoy something or celebrate a moment or you know as course, a tourist site it's as a, yeah, as a tourist absolutely. site even absolutely a tourist site you could see people coming from all parts of the world you know east asia europe and occasionally american tours too and so it was a, it was an amazing place to be in and that in a way got repeated that experience in a different way when my son who was at the time a phd student visited iran and when she was there the grand poet of the 20th century uh, simin behbahani had passed away i don't really want to call her the woman poet because she just is the poet for the world and mm-hmm. not just one gender and my son called me and said mom there are millions of people attending her funeral mm-hmm. and he was right about 3 million people had come out to basically acknowledge uh, the the loss of this great voice in poetry and and i said to him i said yes remember that see that poetry matters and you know she was simin was one of the greatest voices for peace 
even though, for example, Iraq had attacked Iran, but she never glorified that war. She was always talking about what is a way for us to bring about peace with this neighboring country. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you've also written a number of books. I want to encourage our readers to follow your work, follow your podcast, Radio Rumi. It's available all on different podcast applications and also to read your books. You have Reading Mystical Lyric. The Case of Jalaluddin Rumi is one of your books. The other book is Recite in the Name of the Red Rose. And Jasmine and Stars, Reading More Than Lolita in Tehran. And on that note, Fatima, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. It was great indeed. Thank you. That was Fatemi Keshavars, Professor of Persian Studies and Director of the School of Languages and the Roshan Institute for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. If you like the Iran Podcast, please consider supporting our work. You can go to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast and click on support. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, CastBox, and all the other major apps. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.